I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode of The Distribution, I sit down with David Haber, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. At Andreessen Horowitz, David focuses on technology investments in financial services. Andreessen Horowitz is a venture capital firm that backs bold entrepreneurs building the future through technology. They are stage agnostic, investing from seed to growth stage companies across a variety of sectors, including AI, consumer, crypto, and fintech. A16 has $35 billion in assets under management across multiple funds and is widely considered one of the industry's leading and preeminent venture capital firms. During our conversation, David and I discuss his career and experiences as both an operator and founder, as well as an investor, his current focus as a venture capitalist investing in fintech companies, and the market dynamics for both venture capital and fintech, and the always popular and important topic of generative AI and the ways that David and A16 are seeing impact in the financial markets and human capital efficiency. Let's get into it. David, welcome to the show. Brandon, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, I like to have all my guests start by introducing themselves. So can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you're doing today? Sure thing. So good to connect with everybody, I guess. I'm David Haber. I'm a general partner here at Andreessen Horowitz. I joined the firm in July of 2021 as a general partner on our fintech team, but also really to help kind of plant the flag here in New York City. So it's technically the first general partner outside of the Bay Area, and it's been a fun, you know, two and a half years since. You know, happy to go into a little bit of my background, if that's useful, just to give you a sense for my story. I've kind of gone back and forth between being an investor and an entrepreneur. So, you know, initially out of college, worked for a very successful biotech entrepreneur and investor, a guy named Rory Riggs, who had started a few biotech companies that he took public. He had started what became at the time the largest billboard company in Japan, which is a story in and of itself, and then started a very large private equity business called Royalty Pharma, which maybe for your audience would be interesting, but they're the largest buyers of pharmaceutical royalties in the world. And he sort of invented the asset class in the mid-90s, built this amazing firm, you know, at that point, not as a fund, but really as a permanent capital vehicle, and then ultimately took that firm public during COVID. And it's an amazing business. It has 50 employees and a $20 billion market cap. And so really sort of taught me the relationship between both delivering exceptional returns and building kind of a source of compounding competitive advantage, which has informed a lot of how I think about my time here at Andreessen, which we can get into. Ultimately worked for him during the financial crisis, then for two years after graduating, you know, had a bunch of entrepreneurial ideas. He was always like, I'll see you, let's do it, I'll sit on your board. There was nothing at the time that I was sort of yet banging the table for. And so I ended up uh, moving back to Boston and joining a venture capital firm called Spark in 2011. Essentially, it's the kind of one non-partner at the firm at the time. It was, it was seven sort of GPs and me. And they'd already been pretty successful. They had, you know, primarily in kind of consumer internet and ad tech. So they had seeded Tumblr. They put a bunch of money to Twitter when there were 10 employees. You know, we wrote, wrote the first check into Oculus when I was there. So I was always very interested in, in online marketplaces, did a little bit of enterprise software, but 
really ultimately kind of went down the fintech rabbit hole, you know, back then in, in 2011, 2012, and 2013, you know, and then ended up, you know, in some ways getting lucky and, and helping them, you know, source and seed Plaid and Orchard and a bunch of other companies at the time. And it sort of felt, you know, which I think turned out to be the case, still early kind of within this larger wave of, of financial technology that was just sort of beginning to form, you know, at that point. I've always thought of myself, you know, more as an entrepreneur than as an investor. And so once I had something I was particularly passionate about, I knew, you know, I needed to leave and go build it and, and ended up starting a fintech company at the end of 2013 with a good friend of mine named Peyton Sherwood, who I'd met in 2009. He was a few years older than me in, in college, had studied computer science, had been at D Shaw for a number of years, and then ultimately was running engineering at Venmo. And Venmo in 2013 ended up getting acquired by Braintree and then PayPal. And so I pulled him out of PayPal to go build a business called Bond Street, which was ultimately in the small business lending space. And, you know, part of the catalyst for that business was really twofold. One was I was spending my time kind of running around New York as a young VC, bumping into, you know, fast growing physical products businesses, services companies who were not necessarily a fit for venture capital, but in many cases were doing, you know, millions of dollars a year in revenue, were profitable growing and couldn't raise bank financing. And on the other side, you know, as I sort of dug deeper into the actual workflows of processing small business loans, they really hadn't changed in like 50 years. And yet a lot of the data that we thought we would need to sort of understand the financial health of these small businesses at that point was just becoming available online via API. So Intuit had just launched an API for QuickBooks, but also Zero and Stripe and Harvest and Braintree. This whole sort of ecosystem was just beginning to open up. Obviously, we just needed Plaid so you could get access to bank transaction data. The IRS had just started accepting e-signatures so you could get tax transcripts programmatically. And we knew we could write integrations into the credit bureaus. And so the idea simply was, you know, we thought we could deliver a much better customer experience to this small business owner and let them essentially authenticate access to their various financial accounts and ultimately underwrite credit decisions a lot more efficiently with technology. And, you know, we left to start that business, as I mentioned, at the end of 2013, raised a small seed round at the beginning of 2014 built a great team, which is what I'm most proud of by far, and then convinced Jefferies to give us $100 million of their balance sheet. That sort of precipitated our Series A that Spark led, used kind of both transactions to scale a team and scale rich nations. You know, ultimately didn't raise a ton of equity, raised, I think, $11.5 million in total, but, you know, $900 million in debt capacity, which we can get into because it's, it's informed some of my kind of investment theses here, and then ultimately sold the business to Goldman in 2017 and got merged initially into what became Marcus. I spent one year in that business, which was sort of the Goldman's foray into the consumer banking space. And then the last two years working with this woman named Stephanie Cohen, who was the chief strategy officer of the firm. She had just been promoted to run kind of that function, but really worked very horizontally, I would say, across the organization with kind of the heads of engineering across the firm, mostly on kind of technology strategy, but our team did firm M&A. We were doing some investing, and it was a great kind of opportunity, you know, to, to understand a large financial institution from the inside in kind of a bird's eye view and get a sense for, you know, what is a firm like that uniquely good at? What are they not so good at? Where would you want to compete with them? How do you get, how do you get shit done within a big organization? You know, how do you get them to pay a real price in an M&A transaction? And again, that experience, I think, kind of being within the belly of the beast in some ways has also, I think, informed a lot of my, my time here at Andreessen Horowitz. So, yeah, my partner, Alex Rampell, ultimately recruited me to the firm. I, I've known him for about 10 years. Our COO at Bond Street used to work for him at his last company, Trial Pay. And he was the one to recruit me over in, in 2021. And it's been a, a great ride since. 
And we got to know each other when you were at Goldman. But I want to go back, and I think that's a there's a lot to unpack there. Your entrepreneurial journey as a founder and an operator, and now your your experience as a venture investor. But was it a foregone conclusion that you were going to be in financial services and investing? How, what was your kind of like, when did the light bulb go off? Was it in grad school or before that this was a career or this was an industry or area that you wanted to learn more about and eventually dive into? Or was it more happenstance? It happened somewhat organically, to be honest. You know, I, again, I studied biochemistry at Harvard as an undergrad. So originally I thought I was going to be a doctor, but again, it had always been sort of very entrepreneurial. It started a bunch of little companies growing up. You know, my, my first exposure to the tech ecosystem in, in college was at this sort of failed online education company called Batik. I'd sat next to our lead engineer. He ended up starting Airbnb. <laughs> so it sort of gave me my first exposure to the tech world in 2007. Actually, Dave Eisenberg worked with me at that company at the time. So we, we have a shared history there. And then ultimately, as I mentioned, you know, ended up working for this amazing entrepreneur named Rory Riggs. And he had a bunch of companies, as I was describing, but I kind of became obsessed with this, this business called Royalty Pharma, as I, as I was describing. Nobody would call them that, but they were effectively the most successful factoring firm ever. They were essentially buying future cash flows at a discount, right? And, and they happened to do so within a particular, particularly large and p- particularly esoteric sort of asset class, which became pharmaceutical royalties. But it taught you, taught me a lot about kind of the time value of money in some ways, which I didn't really have a sense for. I had no background in financial services, to be honest. And I was like, huh, why would, you know, A, this intellectual property was typically sitting on university balance sheets. They were willing to sell those future royalty income, that, that future revenue, sort of at, at a discount to what he perceived to be the future cash for the drug. So I was really interested in understanding the kind of incentive dynamics of doing that and how he could build such a successful business, sort of buying those future cash flows. The other thing that was happening, which was the summer of 2008, was, you know, the world was sort of beginning to implode. He basically told us, you have an unlimited, it was four of us in him sitting at a table every day. It was a very unusual kind of setup. He's like, you have an unlimited book budget. Go read about modern portfolio theory and come back to me and tell me what sounds real and what sounds like bullshit. <laughs> and really pushed us to debate him, which again, as a young person, you know, sitting across the table who was, you know, from somebody who was already so successful, you know, turned out to be a pretty formative experience. And again, taught you the sort of value of your ideas and not your pedigree. So that sort of like was a light bulb moment, both in kind of building a very basic but sort of foundational understanding of financial services. I would say my like interest in fintech in particular really started kind of forming at Spark. You know, as I mentioned, the firm had been very successful in consumer internet and ad tech and in a handful of other categories. Financial services, maybe this was sort of a high level observation, felt like a really big part of the economy that had yet to be kind of fully transformed with technology. And I was just trying to find my way, you know, within this firm and, and identify a lane that I felt like I could kind of build expertise in and add value. And, and that for me ended up being, you know, fintech. And so I started focusing on that and, and found myself getting kind of more traction internally where I could communicate, you know, the kind of market landscape and identify, you know, companies within that landscape and be able to express like why this particular team was, was the best position, let's say, you know, within the ecosystem of, of companies we were talking to. So you know, I, I realized it, it sort of felt like there was sort of momentum building in this category. And, and ultimately, I think with Plaid and then identifying sort of the opportunity for Bond Street, it just, it sort of became my brand, I would say, and, and happened somewhat organically. But we'll get into it more, I'm sure. But one of the reasons I've always liked fintech is that I've also always viewed it more as a horizontal than a vertical. And, 
you know, financial services in general and fintech in particular, I think has a tendency to kind of cut across every industry. And so it's both an excuse, I think, to sort of invest everywhere <laughs> and, and also in this genuine belief that opportunities live between fields of expertise. And so I find myself exploring a lot of the intersections as well. Yeah, and we'll definitely come back to fintech. And I think we need to just make sure that we're level setting on what the definition of fintech is. But before we do that, going back to your time at Bond Street as an operator, as an entrepreneur, you learned a lot about what it takes to build a business. And one of the things that we talked about, you mentioned Dave Eisenberg with Zig Capital, who was a prior guest on the distribution podcast. He talked about the transition from being an operator to an investor. And for you, it sounds like there was an intermediary step before you joined Andreessen Horowitz. You were at Goldman through through acquisition of your company. What did that transformation look like through your eyes, making the shift from building and running your own business and working with amazingly talented people that you personally recruited and trained and enabled to then going inside of a big company like Goldman Sachs? Totally. Yeah. And it, it was a very different transition. So I, I would say, you know, my time at Bond Street was probably the most creative experience of my career in some ways. You know, I, I loved the experience of building a team, a brand, a culture, a product. You know, at some point, Bond Street, the company itself became the product. And it's just an amazing experience to like, you know, look around the room and see, you know, several dozen people who've invested their time and careers in your idea. And sort of the, you know, the concept that this was sort of literally just an idea, you know, a couple of years before and all of a sudden it's a company and and you're now responsible for people's financial lives and, and their families in some ways. And then ultimately having impact on customers was just a very formative experience. It was probably the most challenging, you know, experience in my career, but you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what it, what it means to be a leader. And then the, just the zero to one experience and, and the grit in, in many ways that, that kind of comes with that. I would say at Goldman, you know, it was, a, it was an unusual experience because you know, when we joined, I was very much not the uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs, in case that wasn't obvious. <laughs> and so you're transitioning, you know, your company, which was really small. You went from, God, we were 40 people. We went from 40 people to 40,000 people overnight, right? And you're sort of handing over your team to another organization. And they're no longer looking to you for guidance and direction. They're looking to other people within the organization. So that was sort of an un unusual and unsettling kind of experience. You spent the last four years kind of being the leader you know, and setting the pace and direction of the company. And all of a sudden, you kind of have to let go, right? And, and ultimately let them, if they want to have a successful career inside the firm, let them be absorbed within the mothership, within the goals and ambitions of that organization. So that itself was just a kind of an unusual experience that I didn't anticipate. Candidly, it was somewhat of a welcome one because I was exhausted. And I think the first few months transitioning, you know, from being an entrepreneur to being inside a big company was pure recovery. And then you recognize, wow, you know, fintech, which has been, had been sort of my area of focus inside of a, a, a large bank like Goldman is really just technology. And Goldman is a very unique business in the sense that it's not one large operating company. It doesn't roll up into, you know, one or two kind of discrete functions. It's really, I would describe sort of as confederation of lots of small-ish businesses kind of under the common umbrella of different divisions. And what was unique about that for me was if there was something interesting to do on the outside, there was some place to put it. There was so much surface area to the firm. You could be a, an advisor, an acquirer, a customer, an investor. And so I ended up asking myself a few different questions. One was, what does it mean to take risk within a large organization? Because that's sort of my natural, I would say, disposition, as I mentioned, as more of an entrepreneur than anything else. So what did it mean to take risk? 
Well, for me, it basically meant completely disregard your job description, <laughs> you know, disregard <laughs> your seniority, kind of fire off emails to like all the people, you know, all the senior people within the firm and speak very plainly, whether the most senior people or the most junior people of the company on things that I observed that were doing well and things that I thought were a challenge. And then try to be sort of this bridge or connective tissue between Goldman Sachs and the outside world. And that was sort of a role that I, I tried to play within the Marcus business, then ultimately kind of got licensed to play within the firm-wide strategy team. And so I ended up getting involved in, you know, an investment in Carta, an investment in Walla, M&A transactions, technology strategy, and kind of really ended up playing the firm very horizontally. And, and again, I think that experience taught you how do you actually get stuff done within a large organization? What does leadership look like, not at a 40-person company, but at a 40,000-person company? Again, what is a firm like that uniquely good at, right? In many ways, banks are sort of have a regulatory blessing to build a balance sheet. Not necessarily, you know, a regulatory blessing, certainly to build software. And yet they were a business that had lots of engineers. And so, again, just from the inside, identifying the problems that still exist, even within a large organization and as well-resourced as that one, was, I think, a unique opportunity just to see, to, to get that vantage point from the inside of an organization that, again, I, I now think a lot about, you know, when investing here. And, and so you ultimately made the decision to move from Goldman to Andreessen. You mentioned you were recruited by somebody that you had previously worked with and respected. Was there, you know, was it simply just a different opportunity? Were you ready to turn over a new leaf or were there things that you were hoping or seeking to accomplish that were better served to do so inside of a venture capital firm like Andreessen Horowitz than, than Goldman Sachs? Yeah, look, I, I loved my time at Goldman. And as I mentioned, I, I, especially as I reflect now, is incredibly valuable. I know that I have a different gear when you feel more like an owner, you know, and, and, and the sort of lens that I was using or the kind of litmus for what I was describing as what I wanted to do next was this notion of wanting to help build a firm versus run a fund. And it's my way of describing that I feel best personally somewhere between being an investor and an entrepreneur. And, and what do I mean by that? In my mind, the objective function of a fund is how do I generate the most carry with the fewest people in the shortest amount of time possible? And by the way, you could be incredibly successful just doing that. A firm is sort of two things in my mind. It's how do I deliver exceptional returns, which is a prerequisite for building a successful fund or firm. The second piece is how do I build a source of compounding competitive advantage, right? Essentially a moat, like an entrepreneur would think about building a moat. And and I found, at least from my conversations with folks, is that you know most people were running funds, very few people were building firms. And often the people building firms were organizations run by entrepreneurs first. They happened to be running an investment firm, but I think if you ask them, are you an investor or an entrepreneur? Certainly Mark and Ben, and a lot of the kind of investment organizations that I most respected, they would say 100% were entrepreneurs who happened to be building an investment management business. And that was, again, a lot of ways to be successful, but just sort of the aesthetic of the organization that I was most drawn to. And as I mentioned, you know, I'd, I'd known Alex Rampel for, you know, almost a decade, I think at that point, you know, I pitched him as an entrepreneur in like 2015, 2016. He passed, we stayed friends. <laughs> he ultimately, you know, laid around in, in Plaid and, and we invested in Carter along the same time. So kind of knew each other both as, as entrepreneurs and, and investors. And I think had a similar kind of shared vision for what the firm could become. And you know, fortunately for me, in many ways, you know, they wanted to open a New York office kind of in the middle of COVID as kind of the 
physical network effects in some ways of Silicon Valley were beginning to unbundle and New York was becoming a bigger ecosystem. And that felt like a really kind of exciting opportunity, both to join a firm that I really admired, but also be able to ha- plant a flag in you know, a city that I, I at least grew up in professionally and have you know, a lot of affection for. Before we talk in more detail about what you're excited about as a venture investor in A16, you, you mentioned this idea of, are you an entrepreneur building an investment management business or an investor exploring your entrepreneurial endeavors? I think you said it more eloquently. The distributions listened to by venture capitalists, private equity, investors, real estate professionals. And if I think at real estate in particular, which is where I spend a lot of my time and my listeners will know, there's this big question about how do you create enterprise value? And a lot of real estate professionals will tell you that they're investors and they're you know building a business on the side. And I think the markets are saying, well, actually, you know, you need to be entrepreneurs and the investing needs to be secondary. I'm curious, I don't expect you to have any expertise on real estate. If you do, that's great. But like, how do you think of this idea of the intersection of the entrepreneurial journey and kind of enterprise value durability company building? It's a good question. Look, I, I think you, you don't necessarily set out to build enterprise value explicitly. I think it is sort of a byproduct of building a source of compounding competitive advantage. And ultimately, like that compounding of an advantage needs to, it should be ideally a feedback loop that drives better returns. So ideally, it's aligned with both your you know, investors in your fund, but also helps strengthen, again, the moat that you have in the business. And, and again, I think the byproduct of that with scale comes enterprise value. You know, I'm not an expert in real estate, but I would say I'm like a student or try to be a student of alternative investment platforms generally. And I think if you look historically at, at venture capital, the sources of those compounding competitive advantage have historically been brand and reputation, which I think are still paramount, by the way. Like that is a prerequisite for being successful. And all the credit in the world to, you know, Mark and Ben and the rest of the team for building an amazing business in a very short period of time. You know, Andreessen Horowitz is only 12 years old, or about, you know, 35 billion in assets under management, 550 people at the organization, and have delivered, you know, have done very well, you know, in, in the kind of the decade plus history. And I think in a short amount of time kind of catapulted itself to in that top one, two, three, you know, you know, venture capital firm conversation in the world, in my opinion. So we still think a lot about that. We don't take any of that for granted. We still work our asses off every day to sort of ensure that we have the brand and and ultimately the reputation with entrepreneurs who who are the people who really are our customers. If you take a broader aperture of outside of just venture capital, you say, how have other people built? sources of enterprise value or sources of enduring or, you know, enduring enterprise value or, or compounding competitive advantages, I think there's a handful of examples that I find super interesting. One I mentioned earlier, which is Royalty Pharma. Royalty Pharma is a fascinating case study because, again, they started out not as a fund. They started out as an LLC with, I think, 75 or $100 million of, of initial capital. And what Rory and his partner, Pablo Legretto, who's the CEO of the business, they would acquire these income-generating pharmaceutical royalties. They would put them not in a fund, but again, into this LLC and pool all these income-generating assets together, which, by the way, have, a, have patent protection and sort of persistent cash, cash flows, almost like a REIT, I guess. They ultimately built significant scale by identifying a few targets that became super successful. So one of the first drugs that they bought was a drug called Humira which treats rheumatoid arthritis, 
Ultimately, they found that it, it treats psoriasis and Crohn's disease and a bunch of other autoimmune issues. It became the most profitable drug on the planet. They bought the royalty interest in, I think, in the 90s at some point, and then it bought up all their competitors. Amazing business. So that gave them some scale. It also allowed them to raise larger and lower cost forms of debt. And so they had both a scale advantage and then a cost of capital advantage. And so if you look now, this is a business that has done, I think, 85% of all pharmaceutical royalty deals over $500 million, right? And 50% of all pharma royalty deals ever. I don't know any investment management business that has that dominant a market share almost in any asset class in the world. And that's one of the things that makes it such an interesting business. So you have a scale advantage, you have a cost of capital advantage, you have sort of a complicated target you know, business. And it's sort of this, now they're a public company so they can raise even cheaper debt you know, over time. And so there's this sort of built-in scale thing that, that they've built. I think if you look at other businesses like, I don't know, an Apollo, you know, they've done this through permanent capital or what they call perpetual capital with the insurance business. And that's been a similar kind of quest towards lower cost of liabilities, which effectively is lower cost of capital. That sort of feeds their credit business. And I would say a lot of the enterprise value in that has come through the insurance and credit business and less directly, you know, from the private equity business. And I think you've seen a lot of other private equity firms follow suit with KKR's acquisition of Global Atlantic and, you know, Black's doing doing something similar as well. Even Goldbit, I think, is another interesting example in, in sort of what I would describe as like embedded distribution, right? There's a real synergy between Goldman's merchant banking business, which effectively is a mini Blackstone within, within Goldman Sachs, has a real estate business, has a private equity business, growth business, credit businesses, and then the wealth management division. And so when they want to go around and raise new capital, it's not 100% solved, but they've kind of syndicated across their private wealth client base and their institutional clients and the wealth you know, side of the asset management side of the house. And funds get raised very quickly. And clients of the private wealth business want to be on the platform because they get unique access to the alts from the merchant bank and other clients. And other clients want to raise capital through them because they have wealthy clients and large distribution. And so it feeds on itself as sort of this, you know, again, compounding competitive advantage. And so, again, ideally, these are qualities that both build kind of durable moats within the business and reinforce the core of your investment practice to deliver, you know, better returns. And so it's not to say that we have any, you know, we have the ambition to be a Goldman or, or an Apollo or, or, you know, mimic them in any way, but I think there are qualities and I think it's important to be a student of those businesses and identify, again, how have people built sources of competing, competing competitive advantage and what are the ways that we can potentially apply some of those things to, to what we do and, and make them uniquely our own. You know, again, one of the unique things in some ways in my mind about Andreessen Horowitz is that it's really, as I mentioned, a firm run by entrepreneurs. And how does that manifest? It really manifests in a couple ways. One is sort of an intensity, I would say, with which people think about the way we do business, a willingness to tear you know, things down and rebuild if it's not working or adapt to the market, a willingness to take risk and put real chips on the table, and a willingness to build a team in an organization because many folks at the firm have been managers of large organizations before. And so again, you know, today we have 550 people across Andreessen Horowitz and our various investment platforms. And the vast majority of those folks are operating partners. You know, we have a large go-to-market team, a large people practices team, you know, marketing, you know, financial services, you know, capital markets. And, you know, these are resources that we make available to our entrepreneurs to ultimately help them tilt the board in their favor, ultimately help them scale from being 
first-time founder, ideally to a public company CEO. And again, it's a, it's a very different kind of aesthetic and surface area and scale of firm than what you would see in most venture capital firms, which is usually a collection of, a small collection of investors and, and that's about it. So before we get into fintech, what does it mean to you to be a venture investor? You've just kind of framed up some of the elements that make Andreessen Horowitz different and, you know, but I don't want to put words into your mouth. So like, it may seem obvious, but, you know, let's break it down to, you know, you're talking to your grandparents and you're describing to them if they were alive or maybe they are, you're describing to them what, what you do as a venture investor. Yeah, I mean, at its most basic level, you know, we're investing in the earliest of companies. At least that's where I spend most of my time. It's really from two people and a PowerPoint presentation and an idea. And, you know, that's often where we're first investing. It's really in, it's really a people business at the end of the day, at least in the early stages of venture capital. You can have a perspective on a technology, a market, a product, but at the end of the day, those things can change. The people are really the thing that, that you're investing in that that need to adapt, you know, to the rest, to customer feedback, to market conditions, et cetera. So I often describe that, you know, I sort of half joke that I don't know much, but I feel like I know people. And that's always served me well, both as an investor and an entrepreneur. And so I like to say that I'm really investing behind people. We happen to do that broadly in technology markets. And, and I, you know, tend to focus on kind of B2B and, and financial services kind of writ large. But at the end of the day, I'm investing in people that are building a technology company. And that's, I think, the core especially of early stage venture capital. And our job in many ways is, is identifying, you know, you know, the most ambitious and most talented kind of people in the world. And so you've now taken that and you've specialized in financial services and fintech. And, you know, as a fintech company, you hear a lot about this FinServe, FinTech, PropTech, all these monikers, you know, how do you define fintech for your specific practice at Andreessen? I, I take a very broad definition, I would say, of, of financial services. You know, one of my partners, Angela, I think described, you know, had a great line, which was every company is a fintech company. I think that's generally true. I think historically, you know, the, the sort of more narrow definition of fintech was businesses that would lead with a financial product. Bond Street is a good example. You know, the core of Bond Street's business was a loan. And we were trying to make that process of getting financing a lot more efficient with technology, data, design, et cetera. I think there's still a, a big part of the fintech world that is that kind of definition. I think the broader aperture is a fewfold. One is, in many ways, fintech is becoming a business model that is embedded elsewhere and, and a lot of different places. Alex has written a lot about this, but you know, historically, the kind of core business models of internet businesses or, or you know, digital businesses was advertising-driven or subscription or sort of you know, commerce-driven in some ways. Financial services in, in many ways is becoming kind of the third leg of that stool where you can build a big software business, right? Based on subscriptions like Toast as an example, generate, you know, real revenue from the core kind of SaaS product and then layer in financial products, whether that's payments or lending or insurance or other things to drive engagement or retention or LTV, you know, from that core user base informed often by whatever data lives within that software. And so that's sort of one expression, I think, of fintech that's, that's sort of evolved in, in recent years. I think the other one more broadly is just software that is solving kind of workflows within financial services broadly defined. You know, Juniper Square being a good example of sort of private markets infrastructure and helping GPs and LPs 
manage the relationships with each other, which I've spent a lot of time in, not you know just in kind of venture and private equity world, but in other asset classes, which we can get into as well. You know, and then broadly, and within that sort of context, another area that I've, I've spent a lot of time in is just sort of being, trying to be the bridge between kind of the, this fintech ecosystem, again, broadly defined, and large incumbent financial institutions. I think one observation that I felt both as a founder and I saw, I think, the need for within Goldman was just building better connectivity. I felt like these were parallel universes that often didn't talk to each other enough, which, again, to me, felt like a missed opportunity, right? In a few different ways. One, in many ways, we're not just, as I described, investing in companies trying to compete with large institutions for balance sheet or cost of capital, but often investing in software companies solving real workflow challenges and who want to sell into these institutions. And it can be quite complicated as an early stage founder navigating a large institution like a Goldman or a JP Morgan or whomever and identifying you know, the key decision maker and what are the kind of variables that I need to consider when selling into a large 40,000 person institution versus a small fund or a small startup. It's a very different beast. And, and again, that's sort of been a new muscle and a network that we've been focused on building. And it's been, I think, quite accretive, both in identifying opportunities accelerating go-to-market and, and ultimately helping win deals that we're, we're quite excited about. So when you talk about parallel universes, like, I mean, part of it is how do you get into these organizations and, you know, match a solution to a problem that they have. But any other examples of kind of how you navigate? Because I often feel like my world exists in parallel universes. So it's an interesting kind of metaphor for kind of the broader macro environment. What else does that mean through your lens in terms of connecting these parallel universes? Well, I think it's a, it's a fewfold. I think one, you know, there's sort of a discovery element on both sides, right? People are trying to solve problems that they most easily see. And part of the challenge is, many entrepreneurs don't see the problems within large institutions themselves. And so when I was at Goldman, I was often encouraging them to be more transparent with their problems and sort of open themselves up for interesting people to help solve the problems that they weren't, they didn't necessarily want to build solutions for themselves. So one is just sort of spending time, even when you're in the ideation phase as a founder, to identify really big problems that may not be so obvious that you can solve. I think it's easy, again, to focus on consumer or SMB, but there's some real enterprise you know, challenges that exist within these institutions that I think can become giant businesses. Conversely, senior executives at many of these large institutions, they're not spending time necessarily kind of on the frontier seeing you know, what early stage companies look like. And so the default tends to be working with vendors who have large sales teams or are kind of the incumbents and aren't necessarily often building the best technology or the best solution for whatever problem they have. And so I think one role that we've been trying to play is both speaking with large institutions, understanding what are your strategic objectives? What are the problems that you're trying to solve? What are your priorities? And then trying to be a clearinghouse for them, right? The reality is that for every companies we see, we probably invest in one maybe. And it doesn't mean that the 99 aren't good companies. They just don't, don't necessarily fit within what we're looking for but they can solve some of the challenges that, that we're hearing from these institutional you know, partners. And so we try to surface those back to them and just be sort of a, a helpful thought partner you know, to them. It's also helpful in, in understanding those problems to identify companies that we want to invest in. What is the level of pain? What is the willingness to pay? What is the wedge into this thing? What, what, what's the kind of place that a company could start in? And when we're evaluating prospective investments, we're often connecting them to senior decision makers at these institutions, both because we think it can drive value to the company and 
and to the incumbent, but also it helps in, you know, make us smarter investors and, and kind of bring us to conviction faster. So again, there's a lot of different dimensions in how they, this plays out. I think the core of it is just building sort of authentic, non-transactional relationships with both sides. And I find myself kind of really enjoying playing kind of matchmaker in that capacity. It's amazing how often it comes back to the importance and power of building authentic relationships. You know, that's a good segue. So as part of your role, you're obviously extraordinarily connected to both the innovation and the innovative side of private markets and financial services, as well as the the problems. What are some of the things that you're hearing from the large financial institutions or maybe just observing on your own from the market, you know, said another way, kind of what are the areas of fintech that you're most excited about and interested in investing or focused on investing in this year and, and perhaps into next year? I mean, I guess this is being recorded. I should caveat for our audience in December of 2023. So take David's uh, response with a grain of salt. Yeah, hopefully hopefully it persists. But yeah, things things change quickly, as you can imagine. So, I mean, a lot is, is sort of the short answer. I, I'd say kind of as I was just describing, one sort of reason we're also spending a lot of time with these large incumbent institutions is that the culture of these institutions are changing. I think there's a recognition and a willingness to adopt third-party technology in a way that they hadn't previously. I think the the default often was to build everything in-house. And I think there's a recognition that they should build things that are going to drive unique competitive advantages to them and own that kind of intellectual property themselves. But the vast, vast majority of things that they need solutions for probably shouldn't be owned and built by their engineers internally. And so that's created the conditions, I think, for more startups to sell into large FIs of different flavors with a kind of faster velocity and speed than I think people had seen previously. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, like from the inside of these organizations, so much of them are still done, like workflows done manually, right? At, at Goldman, there was sort of this you know, the entire kind of back office of the firm was called the Federation. And by the way, I'm, I'm using them as a, as a case study. The reality is they're probably one of the more progressive and kind of well-resourced and engineering heavy organizations. But you can imagine the same thing is true across regional banks and insurance companies and asset managers, which probably have fewer technology resources and have these problems in order of magnitude more kind of intensity. But yeah, the entire Federation across risk, compliance, vendor onboarding, legal, or thousands and thousands of really smart, highly compensated people living inside of Excel for the most part. Obviously with some exceptions, but I think there's a ton of opportunity to build kind of a new generation of enterprise software, you know, that can help radically drive efficiencies with a lot of these kind of internal operational workflows within the within these large institutions. And again, I think generative AI will be a really big kind of primitive to drive that efficiency within these organizations as well. And so we're spending a lot of time kind of, again, at the intersection of, you know, gen AI and, you know, financial workflows kind of writ large. Yeah. I was going to ask you about generative AI. Generative AI, I know it's a huge topic. You know, it's the, it comes up in every single conversation that I'm having. I mean, what are some of the interesting applications that you're specifically seeing or focused on that gen AI can be used to solve problems that are unique to, fintech or financial services or these large kind of investment management companies? There's a ton. I mean, I think, one, again, one of the promises of generative AI is driving efficiency in human capital. And so you look for kind of problems or workflows that have that are very human capital intensive. No surprise, a lot of the large professional services organizations, accounting, tax, et cetera, are probably the earliest adopters of this technology. It's a lot of knowledge work. It's a lot of looking at historical precedent and using these tools to sort of 
again, drive efficiencies within their large kind of employee bases. We're seeing this, I think, pop up in, in a, lot, a lot of different kind of capacities as a co-pilot, you know, whether it's in investment research on both the public and private market side, synthesizing large quantums of data, whether it's like you know, quantitative information, but providing the context against that information with 10Ks or you know, earning statements, et cetera. So we're seeing that play out quite a bit, again, in both private markets and on the public side. We're seeing it in kind of internal workflows within credit. Again, a lot of these credit agreements are quite document intensive and they have lots of you know, complexity with default covenants, et cetera. And so how do you quickly get an understanding of what are the edge cases and, and challenges within that? And how do we sort of assess broadly our, you know, if you're the institution or the lender across all of our borrower relationships, you know, who is likely to default and when, and, and how do we sort of query that, that kind of large base of, of documentation very efficiently? And then, you know, ultimately, I think we'll see, you know, lots of kind of new user experiences more on the consumer and SMB side, you know, again, to kind of abstract away a lot of the complexity of running the financial side of their business and kind of democratize access to advice and personalization. You know, I think David Bellis from New Bank had a great line that I'll steal, which was, you know, if the last sort of decade was about putting a, a bank in everybody's pocket, he, off, he described this sort of new wave as putting a banker in everybody's pocket, which I, which I liked kind of the description around. So the reality is like we're seeing kind of play out across lots of different areas of, of where we're spending time. And, and even our kind of non, I would say, Gen AI native existing investments are finding really clever ways to sort of embed LLMs into their existing workflows and, and kind of deliver magic, magical experiences to their customers. When you think about Gen AI, I mean, I know that a lot of this is a manifestation of the kind of unlock of computing power and, you know, obviously some of the technology advancements but it's shocking how quickly kind of the society has adapted to being empowered by the new set of tools. What are the risks that you see? I mean, this is all still pretty new, right? I don't know that there's a lot of proven successful companies. So you're at the kind of leading edge of, of innovation and investment here. But when you're kind of underwriting the risks of going all in, and maybe you're not all in, so I shouldn't use that word, but investing in Gen AI, kind of what does that look like through your lens? I mean, look, I think we, we take generally like a techno-optimist view. I think Mark wrote his sort of techno-optimist manifesto <laughs> recently, which sort of paints, I think, a vision for the future that, that we're all very excited about that I think Gen AI has a really, you know, big kind of role to play in, in kind of affecting. So, yeah, I think we're very excited about kind of the, the opportunities it creates. You know, I think we still ask kind of the core business questions, which is like, where will value accrue in the stack, right? Does it exist with within the cloud providers? Does it exist with the model companies? Does it exist at the application layer? You know, how much value, you know, gets delivered to the end customer? And, and how does that change in this new world versus maybe the kind of prior decade of cloud? You know, and what are the similarities or differences in this new model where the underlying LMs are actually playing a bigger role as a piece of infrastructure in the actual application than, than the cloud, you know, historically had done itself just as kind of compute and storage. So those are, I, I would say, some of the like investment risk and strategy questions that we were asking ourselves whenever we're making an investment. And I think the reality is we believe that there's value to be created at, at kind of all levels of that stack. You know, I spend my time mostly focused on kind of the application layer. We have a whole team, you know, who really deeply understands and is focused on kind of the infrastructure layer and has historically made important investments in companies like Databricks and DBT and Fivetran, but also in new kind of model-oriented, you know, AI companies. 
sorry to interrupt, but for our listeners who don't understand the difference between application and infrastructure, can you just uh, highlight that distinction for us? Sure. I, w- I would say that in the way we, this is kind of the way we organize the firm, the infra team typically focuses on products sold to developers. So, you know, B to D, let's say. And these are, you know, they're end customers, the developer, and they're using that as, you know, a computer science sort of primitive that they're building stuff on top of. So historically, data networking, cybersecurity, again, stuff that is sold primarily to developers. Applications, in our language, would typically be sold either to businesses or to consumers. That's enterprise software and SaaS. You know, fintech is sort of, again, a horizontal across both things. And a lot of, you know, consumer companies, whether it's subscription products, marketplaces, we would, in our language, sort of consider an app. We also have a separate practice that we call American dynamism that we would say sells to government, so B to G. And this is sort of defense, supply chain, energy, manufacturing in different capacities. And so that's how we sort of, at least internally, have sort of segmented the world is sort of business developer is sort of infra, business to business, so business can do consumers apps, and then B2G government is our colleagues who run the American dynamism practice. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, no, very helpful. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Were you going to finish that thought on, on Gen AI? I forget where I was going, to be honest. Um, look, I think, you know, we generally believe that, yeah, there will be value to be created in kind of Gen AI native companies at kind of all levels of the stack. We've made investments kind of at the model and infrastructure layer. We're beginning to make a lot of investments at kind of the the application layer. And and it's having an influence across kind of all of our investment practices, which we're quite excited about. And in terms of developing an investment thesis, do you start with like thematic, you start with your thesis and then go try to find the operator or because you're investing in people and you are writing, you know, one of the first checks, if not the first check into the company, you find the people and you work with them to solve the problem kind of is it you know how do you how do you think about the sequencing it's hard to predict so i would say it's both top down and bottoms up right the reality is like we we definitely we spend a lot of time and energy building kind of top down thematic investment points of view and we share those publicly we have a lot of content and a whole you know team that is help, helping us sort of not just produce it but distribute that content you know broadly and so we're very transparent about kind of the areas that we're quite excited about. And it acts in a lot of ways as a bad signal for people building in those markets to come and talk to us and, and hopefully provides value to them and how we thought about sort of the landscape and whatever it is that they're building. And in some cases, even on the infra side, we're creators, you know, so they're actually building open source libraries, you know, that other developers can use and then bundle into their their products that they're building. So it, it, it makes the firm feel like a participant, not just sort of a, an observer of technology, which I think is quite exciting as well. In that vein, we often ask, you know, what is the why now for a lot of these companies? Like what are what is sort of unique in today's market environment that sort of could drive, could be a catalyst for growth? And I think one of the definitions in, in some ways of startups is sort of an accelerated growth trajectory. And that's really what we're looking for in, in a lot of ways as a venture investor. But then the reality is sometimes you meet somebody who's just a special human and there is no thesis. <laughs> just like, you know, take take my capital, like you would bet on this person if they were building a hot dog stand almost, like they're just a special person. And, and you know, the intersection of both of those things, when you find somebody special and you have a particular thesis or, you know, an ability to help and kind of inflect the company is where it makes it really easy, I would say, to make an investment decision. And that's where kind of the magic happens. I love that. 
So we're almost at the end of our time, just as we kind of look to conclude the conversation. As you look forward, I mean, we talked about Gen AI, we talked about kind of the broad swath of opportunities. What are the few of the other things that you're excited about, you know, as you look out over the next 12 months? Obviously, let's not sugarcoat it. The world is a very interesting place to say the least from a global macro perspective, from an economic perspective. But through that, your job is to find the opportunities, not necessarily focus on the challenges. So you know, besides Gen AI, what else are you really excited about over the next short term, short to medium term? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of like the rate environment having a negative effect on fintech. I think there's a whole category of companies that where this is an accelerant. And and we've begun investing in, in a few of those. So I would say a few different kind of capacities. One, as I mentioned earlier, and maybe it's relevant for your audience, given Juniper Square's core business, we spent a lot of time in, in all different areas of private market infrastructure. One area focused is in credit, which I think is having sort of this interesting, you know, secular trend and a lot of growth, again, in this rate environment, given the kind of attractive returns that people see with current yields across kind of different parts of credit. And a lot of the workflows that kind of underpin different areas of private credit writ large, I think have still historically not been solved with kind of modern technology. One example of that is a company that we invested in called Setpoint, which is solving a problem that I felt personally at Bond Street, which was kind of the workflows that exist between a fintech originator like Bond Street and a lot of the large asset-backed lenders or warehouse lenders. In our case, it was Jefferies in a large mutual fund you know, business. And so the workflows that existed around originating a small business loan, gathering all the required documentation you know, for that loan, validating that it fits within the eligibility criteria set by the lender, and then reporting on an ongoing basis on the performance of that portfolio against delinquency, default rate, concentration limits, effectively a complicated set of parameters that they dictate, for us at the time was a giant Excel file and like bubble gum and shoelaces. <laughs> and so Setpoint is sort of turning that entire workflow into software and building, I think, a two-sided network, again, between the originators and the large you know, warehouse lenders. And I think over time, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of build a transactional business in between. There are other areas within credit, that sort of asset-backed lending of kind of private credit and direct lending that we're spending a lot of time in and quite excited about. And again, not a lot of modern you know, technology companies currently operating in that space. So it's an area of focus and interest. I think on the other side, again, an obvious sort of macro thing that's played out obviously this year is you know, the stress that's been placed on the regional and community banking ecosystem and kind of the management of, of deposit, you know, both the kind of increased cost you know, both real and perceived of the deposit base. And then also, you know, the potential for kind of regulatory, increased regulatory burden and scrutiny, I think, based on this community is going to be very challenging. And so we've been looking for, you know, companies of different flavors who have built tools and technology to serve this ecosystem community and regional banks. And there's still thousands of them in the country. It's a, a pretty large market. They represent half of deposits in our economy. Um, one example of a company that we led the seed round in about two years ago is a company called ModernFi. And they're building effectively a bank-to-bank -bank deposit network. So they connect banks with excess liquidity with those that need deposits. And they provide analytics into bank CFOs to better understand their balance sheet risks. And then effectively a trading venue to be able to manage that balance sheet on demand. And you know, there's a, a very successful kind of legacy version of this business called Interfi that Blackstone owns. It used to be called Promontory. And it's an amazing business, not really a technology company, more of a human brokered kind of market, but no, nonetheless, it was bought 
buy Blockstone for several billion dollars. Paolo, who's the founder of Modern Fi, I think saw an opportunity out of his machine learning PhD thesis at MIT on bank balance sheet optimization to essentially build a kind of truly tech native, kind of more of an exchange you know, version of, of kind of that deposit marketplace. And so they set out to do that with his co-founder, Adam, who was in the city's sort of treasury function. We backed them two years ago. And then SVP First Republic and Signature happened earlier this year. And all of a sudden, again, managing one's deposit base became existential. And I think people, regional and community banks have been looking for an alternative to Interfi to be able to manage you know, their deposits more efficiently. And, and a lot of them have been excited about what ModernFi is building and giving them kind of better real-time visibility into, again, kind of the fundamental unit of their business. And so, you know, I think both areas, there are others, but both areas are really exciting examples of, you know, how this rate environment has kind of created opportunities. I think the last one, actually, you know, just to mention is our most recent investment, which is a company called Moment, which is building sort of an API that sits across all the different bond trading venues. And they make it very easy to embed fixed income investments in any application. And they're focused primarily on wealth management, although they're working with a lot of kind of large consumer fintech companies who, again, historically have maybe served their customers from an equity perspective, but want to offer, you know, fixed income as an investment opportunity, either in a separately managed account or a bond ladder or in the underlying, you know, individual treasuries or corporate bonds or municipal bonds. Today, it's pretty hard to embed that stuff in any application. And Moment has done a great job sort of abstracting away that complexity. It was a young team of Quonset and Citadel Securities and one we're quite excited about. And they announced a partnership with Apex, which is, you know, one of the larger clearing and custody businesses who is wrapping their APIs and rolling it out to all of their clients. And so, yeah, very excited about that one. But again, all three are sort of benefiting from the current rate environment. And I think have really unique and interesting kind of why nows that this sort of market condition creates. Yeah. I love the optimism and also it just kind of reframes the importance of needing to focus on the opportunity versus, you know, really get down by the challenges that somebody may be feeling given the market conditions. And, you know, I've enjoyed the conversation. I think it's it's incredible to see the success that you've had, but also, you know, just to kind of double down on these ideas of the importance of relationship and the compounding competitive advantage, I think is broadly applicable to any entrepreneur, any business leader, business owner, investor and some of the kind of specific examples that you've shared with us. So with that, if any of our listeners would like to learn more about Andreessen Horwitz or get in touch with you or a member of the team, what's the best way for them to engage or to find you or to learn more about some of the things that you're focused on? Sure. Easiest is just going to a16z.com. Again, we've published a lot of our content and, and investment theses there. You can also reach out to me you know, personally at, at dh at a16z.com. And if you're building in and around, you know, any of the spaces that we discussed today, and we'd love to chat. So really appreciate the time, Brandon. And again, been a big fan of, of Juniper Square, as you know, for a long time, and just appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Thanks for joining me today, David. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com. 
forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time. The views expressed here are those of the individual personnel quoted and are not the views of A16Z or its affiliates. This content is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. Furthermore, this content is not directed at nor intended for use by any investors or prospective investors and may not under any circumstances be relied upon when making a decision to invest in any A16Z funds. Please see more at a16z.com forward slash disclosures or see the link in this episode's description.